0: Good morning. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word there in your seat. If you do not have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word that you can call your own, we'd love for you to take that home with you today. Please consider that our gift to you. If you are a guest with us, we're in the midst of a series of sermons. We've been studying the Gospel of Mark for quite some time now. We're in the final week of Jesus' life, right before he goes to the cross to die for the sins of his people. Today we're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 14, verse 66. Mark Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. You will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us now to understand your word. We've sung together and asked you to speak. Now we ask that you would open our ears so that we might hear and our eyes so that we might see the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in your word. And we ask all of this. In the name of our God, who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thomas was born on July 2nd, 1489 in Nottingham, England. His father died while Thomas was just a child, but his mother did the best that she could to raise him well. At the age of 14, she sent him to Jesus College in Cambridge, where eventually he would graduate with a bachelor's degree in 1511 and a master's degree in 1515. Soon after, Thomas would marry a young woman named Joan. They were happily married, and the Lord began to build their family. But tragically, his wife died while giving birth to their first child. After being licensed to preach in 1520, Thomas continued at Jesus College, eventually earning a Doctorate of Divinity in 1526. After graduating, he remained there, studying, lecturing, and training young men for the ministry as he was examining them in their preparation. During these years, Thomas studied the Bible extensively. He read widely. He studied broadly. And as he did, he began to see the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church were in error, but he did not immediately break away from the church. When the plagues came and struck Cambridge, Thomas and some of his students moved to a nearby abbey where he met some of King Henry VIII's advisors. And one of the main topics of discussion that they found themselves in at that time was the divorce that King Henry VIII wanted from his wife Catherine. These men asked Thomas, who was a learned man, what he thought that the king should do, and Thomas wisely and shrewdly said he should just ask the universities for their opinion. Pleased men told the king Thomas' advice, and the king was so pleased with what Thomas had said, he actually made him his chaplain, a position that he held until the end of his life. A few years later, the king appointed Thomas to be the archbishop of Canterbury. He was officially ordained on March 30, 1533. Years of hard work had finally paid off after all. He attained the highest position in the Church of England. To no one's surprise, one of the first services that the new archbishop was asked to perform for King Henry was to grant a divorce from his wife Catherine. After the divorce, Thomas validated Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn, and because she was a Protestant, that made his life and the life of the reformers a lot easier at the time. Thomas' new position included travel, and he traveled broadly, and it was during these travels that he met some of the reformers in Germany, most notably Martin Luther He began to read his books. Over time, he started to have correspondence with others like Martin Bucer and Heinrich Bullinger. Relationships that led to a firmer grasp of the Reformation teaching of the doctrine of justification by faith. But throughout it all, despite travel, prestige, fame, even knowing a king, he showed himself to be a very humble man. Teachable. Gentle. He had learned to repay evil with good. So much so that it was often said of him, if you want to make the archbishop your friend, the surest way is to wrong him. But the same gentle character was a flaw. He was not always firm when he needed to be. Thomas agreed with King Henry that the Pope should no longer rule over the Church of England and he was instrumental in getting Tyndale's English Bible translation into every church and an edition of the entire scriptures completed in 1537 dedicated to him. King Henry VIII himself, was then presented to Thomas. And after showing it to the king, he asked for royal, quote, license, that the same may be sold and read of every person without danger of any act, proclamation, or ordinance, heretofore granted to the contrary. The king granted Thomas the permission to put the English Bible everywhere for people to be able to come and to read it. And as a result, the people of England could now read the Bible in their own language. Eventually, churches were open all of the time so people could come and read from the Scripture for themselves. Afterwards, from 1537 to 1547, Thomas became intimately involved in the politics of England, which helped him accomplish much for the Reformation. Because of his political friendships, he was able to leverage his position to advance the cause. And it was through these years that he began to change on two doctrines in his own life, the Lord's Supper and justification by faith. Two doctrines King Henry VIII did not support, but at this time, Thomas was so popular, he decided that he would break from the Roman Catholic tradition, that he would no longer teach justification by faith and works, and that he would reject the bodily presence of Jesus Christ in the sacrament. He spoke about these issues before Parliament in 1548. He argued for the spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. And after King Henry VIII died, Thomas, with the new king, began to work to bring many changes in England. Latin prayers were translated to English. Altars were changed to communion tables. Images were removed from churches. The use of candles for incense and similar practices were stopped immediately. He even had homilies printed, and their ministers were ordered to read them to churches so that they would have clarity about doctrine. And because of all of his efforts, now people were finally taught the nature of true religion. In 1550, he was even emboldened to published his most famous work, A Defense of the True and Catholic Doctrine of the Sacrament of the Body and Blood of our Savior Christ. His book was a confirmation of his views. It appeared that he had succeeded. It looked like life was going the way that he intended. Despite the opposition of many, he finally was able to advance his cause. Before Edward died, the king after Henry... He signed a document to give the crown to Lady Jane Grey rather than to King Henry's daughters, even though he had made the promise that he would help them keep the crown. In many ways, that was very understandable. Lady Jane Grey was a Protestant. Mary was a rigid Roman Catholic, and he didn't want her to be in charge, but he showed a wavering character when he broke his promise. When the Roman Catholic Mary was crowned queen, to his surprise in 1553, after Edward died, there was a time of persecution throughout all England. Queen Mary hated Protestants and she hated Thomas because of the Reformation doctrine that he taught and and because he had worked to keep her off the throne and from receiving the crown. Archbishop Thomas was among those who refused to change to Roman Catholicism when she mandated it for all people. Queen Mary hated him, so she condemned him for treason because of his role in helping Lady Jane Grey. She had him arrested and sent to the Tower Prison, where he met uh, Hugh Latimer and Calvin Ridley, where they were also imprisoned at the time. The three of them were transferred to Oxford, where they were called to give a defense for themselves, a defense that was not heeded. They were pronounced heretics, sentenced to death. They were convicted of treason on November 13, 1553. He was publicly degraded before all sorts of people as he was stripped of his office of archbishop. He was stripped of his garments in front of those who had once revered him. His accusers delighted in making the man who had brought so much change from his high position now down and humbled before all the people. He was examined in April 1554, tried for heresy in September 1555, and then condemned by Rome in December. Throughout it all, his enemies tried to get him to deny his faith. It seemed that he wouldn't do this at first. He was resilient, but the queen changed her tactics. They talked tenderly to Thomas. They gave him a better life. Happily, Thomas stood firm. She was still enraged, so she ordered him to the worst part of the prison. He was isolated from his friends. No one was allowed to see him to alleviate his suffering. He saw his two friends in the prison, Latimer and Ridley, burned before his very eyes. Old, saddened, discouraged. His enemies finally succeeded in getting him to sign a paper stating that he had given up his Protestant faith and become a Roman Catholic. Thomas had failed. He failed and capitulated when everything was on the line. He failed to take a stand, and we're left wondering, had he really been sold out for Jesus after all? And what does it mean to be sold out for Jesus when those who profess to follow him deny him? When even Peter, one of the disciples... Hand selected by Jesus himself, one of his closest followers, his friend, a leader of the apostles, denies him when he's supposed to take a stand. Peter's denials made a massive impact on the early church. They're mentioned in all four gospels, I think, because other than Jesus... No one is so central to the gospel story. After after Jesus, there is no other person mentioned as often as Peter. He's mentioned 19 times in Mark alone. And according to Mark, he was one of Jesus' earliest followers. He was a spokesperson for the 12 at Caesarea Philippi, where he boldly declared that Jesus was, was the Christ, he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw him and beheld him in his, unrevealed glory, his revealed glory there. And later in the upper room, he would stand before all of his comrades and say that he would rather die than deny Jesus. So what went wrong at the end of chapter 14? Why did Peter deny him? How are we to make sense of it and derive application from it for our lives? Notice first, pride comes before the fall. I want you to look in verse 27 of chapter 14 with me. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now look again at our text today. Look in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said... You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed, and the servant girl saw him and began to say again to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. From verse 27 to verse 66, we see Peter, one of Jesus' closest and most intimate friends, make a terrible decision. Not just once, but three times. At the worst possible time in Jesus' life, even though Jesus had warned him that he would do it, just notice the threat of sin in that We can be warned by Jesus, and we are in the pages of Scripture as Peter was in the upper room and still succumb to it. Christians, we know that the enemy prowls like a roaring lion, yet our guard is down. We know that we are waging warfare against spiritual forces, yet we do not prepare ourselves. Proud, confident, full of himself, oblivious, thinking very positively, fallen. Peter's boast in verses 27 through 31 is set in direct contrast to the insufficiency of his own strength when the trial actually comes in verses 66 through 71. So by the end of the chapter, his boasts are now revealed to be lies Far from following Christ in all circumstances, I will never deny you. He won't even own Jesus before a slave girl. Jesus, who had known Peter, had taught him, had healed his own wife's mother of sickness and saved him from drowning at sea and sent him on mission with his own authority and power. Peter denies him. Hours after his boast, on an evening when Jesus needed him most, He says, verse 71, I do not know this man of whom you speak. What went wrong between sunset and sunrise? What goes wrong for us between getting in the car and parking it here? What goes wrong between Sunday morning and Sunday evening? Or Sunday and Monday? Look up at verse, verse 54. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of, of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Peter has been following Jesus since Mark 1, verse 18, but this time it is verse 54 at a distance. Perhaps you have not denied Christ this morning. Praise God. But I wonder, are you setting yourself up for it by following Jesus in a less obvious way? Have you sought to put, verse 54, distance between yourself and the Savior that you profess to love so that your friends won't chastise you for your faith in Christ, or so that your colleagues will actually be your friends? Or perhaps it's more subtle this morning. When frontal attack doesn't work, And many times, it doesn't. The enemy just sneaks around and tries to come in through the side door. If I leave early tomorrow, you'll tell them I was here the whole time, won't you? No one will know if I don't claim all of my cash tips at the end of the night, or if I actually tip my waiters and waitresses fairly after a meal. Taxation is theft. I'm not paying anything. It's just a little money on the side. Who would notice? Friends, the danger of denial is found in the myriad of ways that we put distance between ourself and our Savior. Believer, are you putting distance between yourself and your Savior? Are you creating distance between the Christ that you profess to love by the way that you follow Him in the midst of the week? Shorten it immediately. Confess it right now. Do not delay another moment. Do not get to the end of this service or leave here today without asking Christ for forgiveness and for strength that only He can give. Hear afresh the warning from Genesis. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. While Jesus was giving the good confession. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? To which Jesus boldly replied unquestioningly, I am. At the same time, Peter was in the courtyard giving a false profession. Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. And as Matthew Henry noted, It does not appear that he was challenged or even in danger of being prosecuted as a criminal, but only bantered and ridiculed as a fool. The prideful boasts of Peter came to nothing when the threat was not even that great. Just see it in the text. The first, verse 67, is before a servant girl alone. He didn't even have to answer her. The second, verse 69... It's just before the servant girl and some unidentified bystanders. And the third, verse 70, is merely before onlookers. No one in authority. No one issuing threats. No one even important enough to name. Friends, we learn from Simon Peter that pride weakens us so that we are more susceptible to sin. Why do you care so much about what other people think about you? Pride. Why do you care what they think about your life or your posts or your vacation or your job or your clothes or your children or the way you speak or what you read or how you do it? Pride. And we learn from Simon Peter that pride sets us in opposition to God. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. This is one of those times you're going to need to move over there with me. If you don't know where it is, just go closer to the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5. A little before Revelation. About 25 to 30 years after the denials of Christ, Peter wrote to encourage exiles. A group of people who have been exiled because of their profession of faith in Christ. Peter is encouraging them so that they would not deny the faith, so that they would actually keep the faith. And though he does not mention it explicitly, as he's encouraging them in the face of persecution, I cannot help but wonder that he might have been thinking of this night when one of the things he wrote to them was this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Not pride is bad and humility is better, or pride is evil and humility is good, but pride sets us in direct opposition to God. Pride sets the believer against God. God stands against the prideful person. He opposes them. Friends, I wonder if that's how you think of pride. How we think of pride in our lives individually and the life of the church. Where we are proud, we are deceived. And we are in grave danger. Just think of the last few hours of Peter's life. He had begun the night so proud, verse 29. Even though they all fall away, I will not. He had begun the night so proud, verse 31. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. By the end of the night, verse 72. He broke down and wept. Brothers and sisters, are you proud? Are you living a prideful life? One that is looking for exaltation and self-aggrandizement. Where other people think highly of you. See, the irony is, is that many of us don't actually even want to be great people. We just want to be thought of as great by other people. We want to be perceived as great by other people because we are so proud. Simon Peter tells us that we are in opposition to God. And what can we do about it? Confess our sins, confess your sins to God. Confess your sins to fellow believers, especially to other believers who you might be embarrassed to confess them to, so that they would know the real you, because otherwise, pride will make you think that the dangers in your life are far smaller than they actually are, and it will lead you to areas where even you, even I, even Peter can deny Christ. Pride flatters us. I'm strong. I'll never do that. But its target is your soul. God opposes the proud. Pride comes before the fall. Notice second, denial is not apostasy. Look at verse 66 again. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I was reminded by one preacher this week that there is almost no way to handle this without the wrong people being encouraged and the wrong people being discouraged. So I'm just going to state two truths plainly, as he did. In this world, sometimes true Christians sin. And that is not contrary to the teaching of 1 John. And in this world, sometimes unrepenting sinners claim to be Christians, but they love their sin, and they do not love Jesus Christ. So the question is, which was Peter? And what's the difference between Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial? I need you to look with me somewhere else. I need you to turn to Luke chapter 22. This is one of those times where reading Mark's gospel alongside another gospel account actually helps us make sense Of what seems to be a semantic argument. The type of questions that we have. Well, what's the real difference between betrayal and denial and abandonment? All of those are bad, right? Well, they all are. So why is Judas lost and Peter saved? Luke chapter 22 verse 31 helps us. Jesus said these words to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded... To have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again. Strengthen the brothers. Peter. Was a true Christian. Who sinned. So when we ask the question. How are Peter's denials different than Judas' betrayal, we have to pause and begin to think of what the Scripture says about each of these men because though they seem so similar, they are actually very different. Like Peter, Judas is a complex individual. Since he's the treasurer for the apostolic band, we might assume, and I think rightly, that he displayed some positive characteristics that were recognizable by others in his life. By that, what I mean is the role of treasurer is not normally given to someone that we know to be greedy and irresponsible and a thief. And while ascribing a singular reason to Judas's fall is difficult, Judas does tell us that he himself wanted money. Matthew 26, verse 15, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you and they paid him 30 pieces of silver? And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. But the Bible also tells us that Judas's betrayal had a cosmic element to it as well. John chapter 13, verse 27, he was indwelt by Satan. How was it that Satan came to indwell Judas and eventually turn him from Christ? John chapter 12, verse 6, tells us that Judas was a thief. And as my former pastor said, it seems that prolonged, unconfessed, and unrepentant sin was the grounds by which Satan entered Judas. Judas was an unrepenting sinner who claimed to be a Christian. He did not love Jesus. He looked the part. He followed Jesus. He did things in Jesus' name. He did good things. People would have assumed Judas to be a Christian. He wasn't obviously bad, like Scar and the Lion King. He's the only lion with a black mane. That's often how we think of Judas. He's the obviously bad disciple. He wore all black. He's got a scruffy beard. Everybody's clean-shaven, all dressed in white. That's not what it was like. Judas looked the part, and he had long, unconfessed, unrepenting sin in his life. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, does that describe you? Is there prolonged, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life? I cannot answer that question for you, especially if it is hidden sin. Recently, while talking with one of my professors from seminary, he said this to us. So many of the sins surrounding situations disqualifying people from ministry are preventable. They're preventable if people would just confess their sin before it becomes something that disqualifies them or ruins their marriage or wrecks their life or sends them to prison. If you want to prevent the train wreck that is ahead of you in your life, you must confess your sin. Brothers and sisters, if you are even remotely convicted right now, that is the Spirit of Christ. Repent of your sins. If your heart is beating fast and you're thinking, if people knew what I did, here's the truth. If any of us knew what everyone else did and thought, we would all think terribly of each other. God saves repentant sinners. If you are scared, so is everyone. And we are all found out by Jesus Christ to be frauds. Confess your sin. Run to Christ. Cling to Christ. Come to Christ. Do not hide your sin. Do not let it be something that builds and builds and builds, and then you can no longer manage it. Why? Because no one has ever been able to manage sin. We all deceive ourselves. I can manage this. I can get my hands around it. I'm going to be fine. No one needs to know. No one needs to be told. Someone needs to know because you cannot manage sin. It will kill you. And it will destroy your life. Everything that you love will be ripped apart. And everyone that you care about will be devastated. And you think, not me, preacher. Preacher. Go and ask Ravi Zacharias that when he began his ministry. Go and ask Tully and Chavidian that when he began his ministry. Go and ask Mark Driscoll that when he began his ministry. Go and ask those who denied Christ in the early church. When they began their life of following Christ and they were finally set before a lion. No way did they begin saying, I'm going to deny Jesus. And then it built. Became a pattern. They were scared. No one was brought in. And they toppled over the edge. Friends, Judas is a painful reminder of how close one can be to Jesus and not experience saving grace because of prolonged, unconfessed, unrepentant sin. In stark contrast to Judas' betrayal, Peter's denials were the result of being overcome by momentary fear of life. And it seems that what led to his collapse was a convergence of his overconfidence in himself. I can do this. His refusal to listen to Jesus' warning. No, you can't. You need to watch and pray. And sleeping instead of praying. Simon, could you not watch with me for even an hour? And a failure to take that warning seriously. I'm just going to follow him at a distance, right into the courtyard. Little did he understand in verse 54, as he warmed his hands by the fire that night, that it was at that precise moment that he was being sifted by Satan. And it's always subtle like that, isn't it? It's just happening whenever we think it's not. The enemy's just driving it deeper into our hearts and pulling us away from Christ. Right before the tragedy of verses 66 through 71. Peter is pursued by a servant girl in the face of that accusation. He denies it. In front of bystanders, he denies it. And then he has this heated response. He invokes curses upon himself. It's not saying that Peter used a lot of four-letter words. It's that he is invoking divine wrath upon himself to preserve a lie. I swear to God, I'm not one of his followers. Be me a liar if I am proven to be one of his followers. He would rather curse himself and take up his cross and follow Christ. No curse words. Just invoking wrath. But there's hope. Verse 72, he broke down and wept are hopeful because not many days later this same Peter the one who denied Christ his Lord, his Savior, his friend has courage to stand up when previously he had fallen and explain the significance of these events scripture uh, scripture words that Chris read for us earlier in Acts chapter 2 verses 26 through 36 this same Peter stands before a host of people and you can imagine how terrified he had to be to do it thinking these guys know what I did These guys know that I was just like them. What kind of spokesman was I? I was supposed to be the rock on whom this church was built. I was supposed to be a dedicated follower going all the way to death. But then on that day, Peter says, you know what? It doesn't matter. I don't care what they think of me. I don't care what you all think of me. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus Both Lord and Christ, this one whom you have crucified. The Christ he denied, he publicly proclaims. And in so doing, he becomes to us the chief illustration in all of the Bible of the perseverance of the saints by teaching us that denial is not apostasy. Perseverance in the faith after sin. Perseverance in the faith. In the wake of sin is the mark of genuine faith. And it is a precious truth for anybody in here who knows their heart and is even remotely aware of their sins. Precious truths that we quote to each other when we come to Article 11 of our own statement of faith. We believe. All genuine believers endure to the end. Their persevering obedience to Christ and attachment to His people are the primary mark distinguishing them. From superficial professors. A special providence watches over their welfare. And they are kept by the power of God. Through faith to salvation. Do you want to know if you are a real follower of Jesus Christ? It's a simple question. Are you keeping the faith? I did not ask you if you are perfectly obeying Christ. I did not ask you if you are perfectly keeping the faith. I asked, are you keeping the faith? Are you trying to put sin to death? Not commiserating with other people about your sin, but trying to put sin to death in your life. Trying to identify sin in your life. Where is it? I don't see it. I can be deceived by it. Are you trying to grow in holiness? Are you trying to grow in love and affection for the Savior? Are you submitting yourself to the teaching of Scripture and to the elders of the local church where you're a member? Are you reading the Bible? Are you praying, asking God for wisdom? Are you trusting Christ or are you trusting yourself? I can get through this. I can make it out. How do you tell if you're really a Christian? I was reminded by one preacher this week, a quote from Proverbs. Somebody's commenting on it. The difference between the unconverted man and the converted man is not that the one man has sin, the unconverted man, and the other does not have sin, the converted man, but that the one, the unconverted man, takes part with his sins against a dreaded God. And the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Do you hate your sin? Do you hate your sin? The ones that no one will see unless you tell them. You see, here's the scary thing in the church. We sang about it earlier though there be false sons in her pale, If there are obvious things in your life and you're a member of our church, we have promised that we love you so much that we'll excommunicate you. But if there are hidden things in your life and you never tell us, you might be able to deceive everybody in the room. Manage it for a long time. Maybe all the way to your death. No one will know. But what we see here is that God knows. God sees He's paying very careful attention to every detail of your life, every word you would never utter, every thought that you would never share with somebody else, every action that you would never do in the presence of another person. He sees it all, and it's laid bare before him. Friends, do you hate your sin? Do you have friends in your life that you're confessing sin to? This is one of the reasons for church membership. You need other people to know who you truly are. Really know who you are, and if they are good friends, they will love you despite who you really are. And they will help you grow away from who you are and to who God has called you to be in Christ. Are you being a good friend to other people? I can guarantee you that perhaps somebody has tried to come to you and to confess sin, just like perhaps you've done that for other people, and you've tried to fleece the issue. But because you weren't listening, you didn't carry on and ask the follow-up question. And they say something like, you know, I'm really struggling. And you're like, we all struggle. Stop and say, what are you struggling with? How can I help you? What's going on? Tell me about it. I want to help you. And when they say, I'm scared, say, you know what? I'm scared to death of my sin too. But we're going to walk through this together, no matter what the consequences are. Together, we're going to get to the end. That's what the church is for, a band of brothers and sisters picking one another up and sometimes just kind of dragging each other to the finish line. Brothers and sisters, we want to finish. So many people have started so well and have never finished. And I'm going to say perhaps that's because they never let their friends in the church know who they really are. You want to know why we care about Life Group? That's why. I don't care if you meet together in each other's homes and eat food, good or bad, and sing songs, off-key or not. I care about you building friendships with one another so that you can make it. That's what your pastors care about. You need one another. And if in the rare case you think, I know no one, God has given you pastors, we would love to help you. Come to us. And if we're honest, we tell you we're scared of our sin too. Just as he finishes speaking, verse 71, a rooster, verse 72, crows. And Peter suddenly remembers. Can you imagine what that felt like for Peter? It just all comes crashing on him in that moment. And he remembers Jesus' prophecy that he would deny him. He's completely broken. But it is when he is completely broken that he learns the joy of true forgiveness. Pride comes before the fall. Denial is not Apostasy, notice third, repentance is more than regret. Look at verse 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. As we've seen throughout all of Mark chapter 14 in Mark's gospel, Peter and Judas are placed side by side in this chapter. They're placed side by side for our instruction. Both fail, but while one is lost, the other is saved. So we have to ask ourselves, what what was the difference? Where did the difference lie? I think it's found in verse 72. As Peter remembered the Lord's word, wept bitterly, and turned to Jesus for forgiveness. At that moment, he placed his hope in the promise of restoration Jesus had given to him. The very words that we read earlier in Luke chapter 22. Simon... Simon, now notice, I don't think any of that's recorded by accident. He doesn't say Peter, rock. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But precious words from our Savior, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You will be sifted, but your faith will not fall. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. Whereas Judas had no hope, only regret, Peter despaired of self and found hope in Christ and in his word. Of all men, perhaps in the New Testament, Peter is the clearest example of the teaching of Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. How do you receive forgiveness that only God can give? First, the Bible tells us that you have to recognize that you're a sinner. The Bible says that absolutely every single person has fallen short of the glory of God. And then you have to learn that the consequence of that revelation about yourself is what the Bible says about death. The wages of your sin is death. The only thing you've ever learned earned by the life that you've lived is death and damnation. As a result of your sin, you will die. Not just once, but twice if you do not turn to Christ. You will die a physical death, and you will die an eternal death if you do not do something about your sin. And it is in that moment, That we finally come to the realization of our desperate need for a Savior. You see, everybody in this room has something in common. We all stand as sinners in desperate need of Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins. But the Bible says, these wonderful words, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after you figured it out. Not after you were able to get it under control. While you were still a sinner. Estranged from God. Deserving hell. And the darkest corner of hell for all of eternity. Christ died and plucked you out of the fire. And set you free. An amazing grace of God. He died for us in our place as our substitute for our sins. So that we might be forgiven if we would repent of our sins and place our faith in Him. Friends, you can do that right now. Believer, repent afresh of your sins. Unbeliever, repent of your sins right now from the sin that is dogging you and derailing your life and disrupting your life cling to Christ, come to Christ, trust the promises of his word. Again, it is in the Bible that we receive these wonderful truths and promises. If you confess your sins, he will never cast you out. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. His mercy is more. It is greater than your greatest sin and he will condescend to lift up your head so that you might see his countenance and behold God in Christ. Trust the Savior today. Do not wait. Do not wait another moment. Do not hold onto that sin. What dignity do you have in preserving that sin away from other people? It will send you to hell. And if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you. I'll be in the courtyard after the service. Our elders, frankly, all of our members would love to talk to you. Grab one of them and ask them, how do I flee from this sin and cling only to the Savior? If you just imagine for a moment, you can almost hear Peter. He's preaching his sermons years later, telling this very story. I broke down and wept after I heard that rooster. And his tears of repentance are what I think is the main distinguishing mark between him and Judas. Judas only felt regret because he did not want consequence. I've given up an innocent man and I don't want to live with myself like that. Peter broke down. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's the difference between genuine repentance and mere regret all of us regret when we've done something wrong because none of us want to experience consequence for what we've done wrong so paul would say this to warn us in second corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death i think because it's only concerned about consequences Your pastor is learning afresh. We cannot care about the consequences of our sin. After his enemy succeeded in getting him to give up his faith and sign a paper stating that he had given up his faith and become a Roman Catholic, they rejoiced at the sad fall of Thomas. Doubting, Thomas Cranmer signed not one but several recantations stating his agreement with the Roman Catholic Church and its doctrine and its authority but recanting did not help him at all. Signing papers did not save his life. Queen Mary still hated him, and she wanted him dead. Eventually, his enemies thought that the best way to deal with him was to have him read those recantations in front of other people. And on the day of his death, a huge crowd gathered to watch as he was forced to stand on a platform that had been constructed near a pulpit of St. Mary's Cathedral. A priest had been selected to preach against Cranmer and the sin of heresy, and then they condemned the man and asked him to read his Recantation, he said, I will do so. Good people, my dearly beloved brethren and sisters in Christ, I beseech you most heartily to pray for me to Almighty God that He will forgive me all my sins and offenses, which are many without number and great above measure. But one thing grieves my conscience more than all the rest, whereof, God willing, I intend to speak more later. But how great and how many my sins may be, I beseech you to pray to God. For his pardon and to forgive them all. Then he knelt down to pray. And after he prayed he rose and he said this. I am come to the end of my life on earth. And am near the beginning of the next life. The one to come. First I believe in God the Father Almighty. Maker of heaven and earth. And I believe every article of the Christian faith. Every word and sentence taught by our Savior Christ. His apostles and the prophets in the New and Old Testament." And now I come to the great thing that troubles my conscience more than anything that I have ever done in my life. And that is that I wrote things against the truth because I was afraid. I was afraid that I would be killed. I am now here to renounce and refuse these things as written with my own hand. Contrary to the truth that I believed in my own heart. All such things I have written and signed with my own hand, I now proclaim untrue. My hand offended in writing contrary to my heart. Therefore, my hand shall first be punished. For when I come into the fire, it shall be burned first. As for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and as Antichrist with all his false doctrines. Infuriated, his enemies rushed against him and they lit the fire because they had expected this well-known helper of the reformers to recant and bring reproach upon the Christian faith. But in the end, God triumphed in Cramer's life, just like he triumphed in Peter's. They rushed him to the stake, dressed in ankle-length robe. He's chained to the pole. He presented a lamentable picture, an old man in rags there before all these people. And as the flames rose around him, he looked to heaven stretched forth his hand into the flame. And he said, this hath offended, oh, this unworthy right hand. Then using the words of Stephen from scripture, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And on March 21st, 1556, at the age of 77, Thomas Cramer died for his faith in Christ. He was, a timid, he was a timid man, afraid to suffer. He did not always stand up for the truth. He had sins and faults like anyone else. But God used him in the end to spread the truth of the gospel throughout England. We're not going to be recorded in the, on the pages of Scripture. Most likely, none of us will be remembered in the annals of history. But we can take a stand for Christ today. You can take a stand for Christ today. You can turn away from your sin. You can publicly identify with Jesus Christ. You can cling to the cross and let people know, this is my Savior. He died for me. Cranmer was a true Christian who had sinned. Beloved brothers and sisters, the Lord's Supper is for true Christians who have sinned and continue to war with that sin. Our Savior Christ, on the night before he suffered, instituted, The sacrament of His body and blood is a sign and a pledge of His love for us for a continual remembrance of the sacrifice of His death and for a spiritual sharing in His risen life. It's in these holy mysteries that we're made one with Christ and reminded of it and Christ with us. And we are made one body in Him and members one of another. Having this in mind, His great love, His sacrifice, His mercy, His kindness, His condescension among us. We give thanks when we approach the Lord's table, not just feeling sorry for ourselves, but giving thanks for God's providence in our life, His love for all mankind, His redemption of His elect people, how He humbled Himself even to the point of death, even death on the cross, that He might make us sinners that we are, children of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we're going to share rightly in the celebration of these mysteries. We have to be remembered of the dignity of this this supper. So I just want to read a section of scripture that we fail to consider as often as we should. Before we approach the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Friends, the benefit is great if with penitent hearts we approach the Lord's Supper with living faith. But Paul tells us that the judgment is also great if we do that in a trifling way and do not examine our own hearts. Is there unrepentant sin in your life right now? Conscious sin that you are aware of. The most godly thing that you can do is abstain from the Lord's Supper today. If there's someone you're estranged from, you refuse and, uh, have refused to forgive them, or have not sought their forgiveness. The most godly thing that you can do is abstain from the Lord's Supper today. But if you have acknowledged those sins, if you have trusted Christ, if you are trying to beat them down and put them to death, brothers and sisters, we invite you to the table. We invite you to the table to come and to be reconciled with one another as we are reconciled to our God as we partake of this most heavenly food. Brothers and sisters, in your preparation, hear the word of the Lord afresh. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance from sin removes doubt, it gives assurance and it strengthens our faith to Christ our Lord who loves us and washed us and gave Himself up for us. If you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, If you've been baptized, if you are a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. If you didn't get one of the communion kits while we sing the first song in just a moment, you can go to the back and get one. And then after that song, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask you to stand, I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you for these solemn words. Solemn words written down in your holy word for our instruction. We pray, Father, that you would help us right now as we approach the Lord's table to be a people who examine ourselves in this moment and as we sing for the honor of Jesus Christ so that we do not trample upon his body and blood. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity upon Him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And by His wounds we have been healed. It is only because of Him that we sing with even a shred of confidence now. But in Him we sing with great boldness. We fear nothing because we have been forgiven. And we will be raised with Him on the last day. Amen.